Anybody ever have, not, not you're from California, you wouldn't know, but you ever have a, like a, like a, a firecracker go off in your hand? So I, I was born and raised, but my mom's family is all from like Missouri and, and stuff like that. So we, when we went to visit like every other year growing up, they'd always go buy like, you know, the four and five-year-old kids firecrackers because that's what you always want to give little four and five-year-old kids. And so we, I, I did not plan on talking about this. I just think it's funny. So uh, they'd give it to us and we'd all sit there and we'd light them and throw them at each other. Boom, boom. But sometimes, yeah, see, I feel excited. So sometimes, though, when you do it, the fuse goes really fast. You're all, spam, and you're all. <laughs> and you can't believe it's still there. You know, like, oh, my goodness, I should have lost those fingers. But anyway, I don't know why I told you that. There you go. Because I still got all my fingers, so it's, it's an amazing thing. Not that I haven't tried to cut them off, but whatever. Um, uh, this Wednesday, if, you, if you're interested, we'll open this up to anybody who really wants to come. We did it really for our staff, uh, but this Wednesday at 9 a.m., if you're available, uh, we have one of the guys that is on the DA's Sex Trafficking Council, and he's going to come and give a little presentation of you know what kind of things in our areas, especially in regard to children, and then what kind of things that we could do as different GCs or as a church to maybe step in and make a difference in some of that. So uh, if you would like to and you have the time, 9 a.m. on Wednesday, feel free to come, and he's just going to kind of do it here. He says the more the merrier, but we just always throw that out and open it up to anybody who wants to come. Uh, so if you are new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. And on the sermon notes, uh, they have these great little coloring book things, so you can color, again, if I get really boring happens a lot, so there's crayons and stuff, and, dude, seriously? So you can, <laughs> so you can color and, and kind of stat, and you can, like, go with your kids and be like, who can color better? I can color better. They can color better. Probably better than you, but whatever. So you can do that, and on the inside, there's a bunch of notes and questions that go along uh, with the message. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live and Uversion. You will get the sermon notes and the verses and the questions and all that goes along with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. So why don't you stand me where the reading God's Word. We'll get started. This is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 32. And it says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust and find our lives and our hope in you. Uh, that we would honor you in, in how we live and that in our lives we would, we would trust you that you are our champion. And that you are the one who sees us through everything, even the things we don't understand. Uh, teach us to be a people who understand the stories that you tell throughout the scriptures. Amen. Have a seat. Right, so we are trying to do a fun summer series called Coloring Book All-Stars. Uh, hopefully it's not too kiddy for you with all the stuff going on. I asked my uh, gospel community, I mean, if they thought it was too kiddy, and they said, no, it's awesome, it's great, but they all have little kids and probably watch Blue's Clues way too much. So I never know if it's true, but anyway, say, they, say, they, they say it's cool. Uh, these are all the people that you would normally find like in a Bible coloring book, all the happy, like, hey, this is amazing, larger-than-life stories that leave lasting memories. At Element, we normally try to alternate between like a topical series and then an expository series where by verse by verse throughout the scriptures. But unfortunately, when I do that, I take so long to get through a section of scripture. Like we did uh, the three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, and it took us all year. So I have had all these little, you know, brain children running around of different topics.
ethical series as I really wanted to do, and, and this is one of them. And so 2015, we're just taking all those little ideas and just kind of doing these different little topical series, although they do kind of end up being expository by the end, whatever. Uh, the ver- 2016, we're actually going to do the first half of the book of Acts, not even the whole thing, because the first half is going to take us all the way into like October. Yay, go us. Uh, so that's just kind of how it works. Uh, today, though, we're going to cover one of the most read and revered and loved stories in the Bible. Uh, the second weekend, the coloring book All-Stars is like the crowning jewels of biblical stories. Hopefully, we'll look at it a little bit different than you think, though. We're going to look at David and Goliath. Okay, David and Goliath. Now, I had Sean Jones take a couple pictures and take them to his kids to color so you could maybe test your coloring prowess against theirs. So this is Tess. This is his two-year-old's picture. You may think you're not that good. I, I think you could match this. I really do. Uh, this is Hurley's. Okay? And pretty good job, right? I don't know why he thinks the bad guy has tattoos. Okay? <laughs> oh, this is the bad guy? Let's give him a tattoo. Of a cross? Really? Really? It does, it does. His daddy must be evil. But he's got, so, I just think it's funny. So, but, so you, you can try to match this. Oh, that, that's pretty good. I think that, that's actually pretty good. Uh, so you can try, you know, they're, they're on the front of those little things, so you can color in there if you want to. Test them with this or your kids. I think one of the reasons we love the story of David and Goliath so much is it doesn't really follow the standard form of Hebrew narratives. David and Goliath is actually highly unusual in the scriptures. And I'll explain what that means in a little bit. But if you're familiar with the story, great. If not, we'll kind of walk through. We'll tell you what it means, uh, do a little bit of background on it. The story of David and Goliath starts like this. There are a group of Philistines. And these Philistines are people at this point in their cultural narrative of themselves in this time and age in the world is they're starting to become highly influenced by Greek culture. Uh, the Philistines have been around for a really long time. They've undergone a few changes. If you went to Webster's Dictionary and you looked up Philistine, this is what it says. A native of, or inhabitant of ancient Philistia. That doesn't help you at all. right? It's like if, if you didn't know what a dog was and you went to the dictionary and it said an animal with dog-like qualities. It wouldn't help you to know what a dog is. It just It's not helpful at all. Now, David, what he does in the account is he will describe the Philistine with the adjective as uncircumcised. Okay? Now, now, technically, that's probably any Greek whatsoever, and it's probably some of you in this room and a lot of people in America. If you want to be a Philistine, just look in your nether regions and you'll be able to tell. Or like, uh. what, what, David, what David means by the title uncircumcised is it means someone in his mind that has no relationship with God or even stands against God. The Philistines were around from the days of Abraham all the way to the time of the Syrian conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel. The Philistines at times between the ages were either friends of Israel, allies of Israel, deadly enemies of Israel, servants of Israel, rivals to Israel. In the table of nations in Genesis 10, 13, and 14, it says, Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, and you have no idea if I'm saying these right, so we're okay. Uh, Neftuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came. So according to the scriptures, they are related in one way to the Egyptian people. Now open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17, we're going to start in verse 4. Uh, the name Philistine comes from the Hebrew word for Philistia. The Greek rendering of the name is actually Palestini. Today when you hear the word Palestine, it actually comes from the word for Philistines. Kind of interesting. The Philistines originally came from Crete. 
uh, on the Aegean Sea region. Uh, when David actually becomes king, again, they are beginning to be highly influenced, as I said, by Greek culture, and that's really important for the story we're going to look at. Uh, the Philistines were originally a seafaring people. They have sailed and taken up residence uh, next to and in the promised land. And so the story today starts. you got the Philistines. At this point, they are enemies of Israel. They're forming up battle lines. So Israel is on one side, and the Philistines are on the other of a valley, and they're lining up for a battle facing off. 1 Samuel 17, verse 4 says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, a span must be very important to be listed here. You got sp- it's like late-night infomercial, right? Well, you, need, you need a span. Take our pill, you will get a span by tomorrow. It's great. Now, if you're unimpressed, uh, six cubits in a span is right about nine feet tall. That is like two feet taller than Shaquille O'Neal. So this is a really, really big dude. He comes out, he starts to taunt Israel, and he says, I want to challenge you to a fight. I, Goliath, will take on your best warrior in one-on-one combat. Then our armies don't have to be involved. If I win, you become our slaves. If you win, we will become your slaves. Now, the nation of Israel, they freak out because you've got a nine-foot giant who you know has never lost a fight coming out, standing against you, taunting you. Saul, who is the king of Israel, starts looking for his best warriors. Who's going to volunteer? Who wants this? Who wants to take him on? Nobody volunteers. (laughs) Nobody volunteers. It's interesting. Saul, who's probably one of the tallest people in Israel, doesn't even go and take him on. So Saul starts going, okay, I'll give you gold. I'll give you silver. I'll give you jewels. I'll give you stuff. I'll give you one of my daughters. Who will go fight? Nobody. It's like, chirp, chirp, chirp. Like, have you seen the dude? They're like, oh, my goodness. You know, what am I going to (laughs) do? Right? So enter into the story, this 10 to 12-year-old boy, named David. Uh, just to give you some perspective, I took a picture. This is me on a ladder and Noah Youngblood. So this is like how, I know, I know, it doesn't do it justice because you got skinny little me. But, okay, so I'm on this ladder and then you got Noah who's 11 years old. That, that's kind of what you're looking at, okay? It's kind of the difference in this. And so David shows up. He's gone to go visit his brothers to see what's going on, bring them some food, check out what's happening over there. And he overhears what's happening. And David, like most 10-year-old boys, think they are invincible. And so David says, oh, I'll go fight this guy. First Samuel 17, verses 32 to 36. And David said to Saul, again, who is the king, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, Saul is a good adult at this one moment. Saul says to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him for you are but a youth. Okay, you're just a little kid. That's where he should have left the argument. Probably, fortunately, he doesn't. But, and he has been a man of war since his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, I don't know what grown man looks at a 10-year-old boy and says, Okay, your argument has swayed me. Go fight the giant, right? This does not seem like a good plan if you don't want to become their slaves, right? Like, oh, oh, let the 10-year-old boy fight for us. How does that? Yay! Yay! Okay! I mean, it's, it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Your odds can't be that great. But he says yes, and, and so what happens, they try to start decking David out in Saul's armor. So what I did is I took a picture of, of here he is. So here he's got my motorcycle helmet, my jacket, my gloves on. 
They probably fit him a lot better than Saul's armor fit David. But anyway, David tries to walk around in this armor. He says, hey, this doesn't fit. It's not going to work. i got to do this my own way. So he goes to the stream. He grabs five stones. He stands against Goliath. When the battle starts, David hits him right in the span. So you shouldn't have taken those late-night pills off the infomercial. And Goliath goes down. Israel wins. David's legend begins. Everyone's happy except for the Philistines. End story. Yay! It's like this wonderful story. Okay, now, why is this odd for the Bible? Now, we believe the scriptures are written in a way that God reveals himself to us. The entire 66 books of the scripture are about God's nature, who he is, and our relation to him, so we learn who we are as well. Sometimes when we see these stories, we think they exist above history and above time and above space. It's important to know where they fit, how they fit in the cultural context of the world and within the context of the cultures around Israel, when and how they were written. And when we do this, we will, I think, understand God's creativity better, what God is doing and what he continues to do, how God crafts his words. Because God does something amazing in the account of David and Goliath that is in contrast to a brand new story being told at this time in the world. I think it's very creative because our God is creative. Now, as I said, the Philistines are becoming a very Greek people. The Greeks have all these stories crafted about their culture, their lives, their gods. Zeus, Poseidon, Apollo, Hades, Nike, we still wear him on our feet. At the time of David, uh, his dynasty starts coming around. The story is surfacing among the Greeks. That's just running rampant through them. It's written by a guy named Homer, and it's called the Iliad. The Iliad has all sorts of things in it, but one of them is an account of a war between the Greeks and the Trojans. And so the most notorious story in this account is what is called the Contest of champions, where two figures faced off to represent these two nations. Now, one guy, his name is Achilles. Achilles is a half-man, half-god. He is, like, larger than life. He is just this amazing dude. And the other guy is Hector. Hector is a great warrior uh, from a great country. He has really never been defeated. Achilles, though, is the Greek. He is like in the half-man, half-god. He's amazing. And Hector is the Trojan. We have a great historical rendering of what they look like. It's, it's right here. Man, this went so, so much better with you than first service. First service is like, what? <laughs> There's this thing that Hollywood does called movies. And anyway, anyway, so, uh, so what started to happen in this, in this contest of, of champions is that you would have, uh, these armies come out against one another and they would start to read the story that Homer did and they would say, you know, be better than this. Let's have a contest of champions so that two kings don't have to like lose their armies. Our champions can decide who wins. And when the Iliad comes out, it really started to change a lot of the warfare because it was Greeks, and Greeks were taking over the world. And you started to have hundreds, if not thousands, of these contests of champions. You can read this through historical literature. There are also tons of stories being written about this as well. I mean, because medicine was really not that good back then, and if you have an army, even if you won, you could still decimate your country. I mean, because medicine wasn't that great, you could run into battle and break your foot, and you could die from that. So it's like, oh my, what, what are we going to do? So kings would negotiate when they couldn't resolve something. The Greeks would start to say, well, let's have a contest for champions. And if we win, then, you get, then, then we get this. And if you win, then we'll give you that. So they started to do this. No bloodshed except for our two warriors. How about that? Everyone really wants to stay alive, so it started to happen. And this contest of champions becomes a whole genre of literature. Uh, Hector and Achilles, chief among them. David and Goliath is a story told in, a, in this contest of champions. This is what it comes about. It's instigated by essentially a Greek people because what you see in 1 Samuel 17, 4, it says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. 
This is the story told in this narrative. But the way God tells it is going to set everything on its head. Everything on its head. Not just for the Greeks, for the Israelites. Because you have these two guys coming out, but yet 1 Samuel isn't written just in a Hebrew fashion. It's also written kind of in a Greek fashion. In the Hebrew world, if you would tell a story or a play, what you would focus on for Hebrews, you focus on a set design and lighting and all these things out here that make it possible for the story to work. The Greek world focuses on individuals and character development. It's very man-centered. And sometimes when we read the scriptures, we have a hard time reading all the way through them because it doesn't always develop characters the way that we like. It talks about God and laws and light and dark and clean and unclean. There's people in it, but not a whole lot of actions. Wars are like bullet points throughout it. But Greeks are all about action and drama. We are more like Greek thinkers. And so when we read stuff, like the Iliad is much more easy for us to understand and read than going through the scriptures. He's a very Greek thinker, by the way. I just want you to know. He's like, yeah, we like the Greek. By the way, that is Aaron. That is my namesake right there. <laughs> just letting you know. Now, uh, sometimes, if you ever, like, picked up a book, and it's like, oh, this is a story, and you read front to back, and it's so easy to read that, but you pick up the scriptures, and it's like, oh, it feels like I'm slogging through this. I just, I can read, like, you know, four verses, and I'm like, oh, what do I, you ever happen to you? People are like, no, no, I, I Leviticus, love it. It's great. That happens because we're Greek thinkers. Now, I also think that's also a good thing for us because I don't think you should just take and read the scriptures front to back. You should read sections so it gets in you and you think about it and you spend time with it. But that's kind of the difference of how we look at it and sometimes why it it doesn't really hit just right. When you get to David and Goliath, the story will take 58 verses. And it's all build-up and drama and character development. It's almost unlike anything else in the Hebrew scriptures. Now, in the Iliad, Achilles puts on his armor, and this is what it says. First, he wrapped his legs with well-made greaves, fastened behind the hills with silver ankle clasps. And next, he strapped the breastplate round his chest, and over his shoulder slung his sword, and he grasped a well-wrought shield to encase his body. First Samuel 17, verses 5 and 6 of Goliath, it says, He had a helmet made, uh, helmet held of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. He'll tell you about the shield bearer that goes before him. This is not normally how Hebrews wrote, so something is happening. God is up to something by taking a story which is going to sweep over the entire world and relates it in a new way because it all comes down to the issue and idea idea of identity. One commentator says that God is doing what is called bricolage. Now, bricolage is what happens when you take an existing brand or a symbol and you tweak it just enough to get it to mean something else, the complete different of what it actually meant. So, so we're going to make a point. So, like camel cigarettes, okay? So, so here's their ad. This is Joe Camel, because all kids want to be camels, apparently, okay? So you got Joe Camel. So they come up with this, Joe Chemo, okay? It's because that's bricolage. That's the exact opposite of the narrative. Uh, You have this right here. This is Calvin Klein, reality for men. Uh, Now, don't be offended by the next picture, okay? This is what you come up with. Right here, this is reality for men. (laughs) Right? It's bricolage. It's, it's like that, but, but you, just, you just tweak it just, just a little bit. Uh, it, it, you match elements close enough to tell the story, but subvert the message. Like today, uh, this is a picture of a house in Iraq, and there's a close-up of that symbol on that wall. Okay, now, what this symbol is, is, that, is that's the letter N. It stands for Nazarene. Militant Islamists now will go in Iraq, and they will paint this on people's homes. And what it's meant to say is that Christians live here. And if you want to rape, murder, kill, burn down, whatever you want, we're not going to stop you. We're not going to press charges. This is, we're marking this home for death. So now what people have done in order to try and start supporting these Iraqi Christians is they take that same symbol. 
and they're starting to wear it around, and they say, I am in. I am a Christian. I will stand with these people. It's this idea of bricolage. God does the same thing to an existing narrative of the Greeks that is sweeping the world and how it viewed people. God takes a narrative of the Philistines who think they are the inheritors of this Greek story, that Goliath is a warrior with great power in the world, and God's going to completely redefine that. The Philistines are using this story as a way to intimidate other people and other cultures because they've got a nine-footer that is coming out at you. You have your champion and you have their champion. But your champion, whenever you're standing against them, you're always the underdog. See, Achilles is the demigod. He is the half-man, half-god. Hector, he is the great warrior, but he's just a man. In the contest of champions, the mere man loses. He loses. So God takes this contest that the Greeks are trying to impose in Israel and brings out his own champion in a very bricolage way. Uh, like, like the hairy guy selling cologne. That's reality for men, although I can't grow that much hair, so whatever. Uh, David is, is like a 10-year-old boy standing against the dude with the extra span. It's actually meant to be funny when you read it. God's like, hey, you know your contest of champions? I have a 10-year-old boy here. Because you don't really face him, you actually face me. God stacks the deck so highly in favor of the Philistines that anybody has to laugh. you got to step back and go, whoa, no, my 10-year-old boy is not going to face the giant. That's why mom and dad stayed home and David went there alone. And his brothers don't really like him. It's like, yeah, go face the Philistine, David. Have at it. That'll be great. You're irritating anyway. So this this 10-year-old boy, he doesn't even use a sword or a shield or a spear or armor. Nothing. And yet he will win. And that's bricolage. God borrows elements to teach us something about himself. So what does this reveal about God? Well, it's found in David's encounter with Goliath, and not so much in what happens, but more in David's words. So 1 Samuel 17, 40 to 47 says, Then he, that's David, took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. That means he was insulted, because this is very funny. Oh, I'm this big and they think this 10-year-old boy can take me out? It's meant to be insulting and funny. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord, and that's Yahweh, that's God's personal name, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. How nice is that? And I will give... I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines, this say, to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, and that all the, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you, and the, you, the word you there, it's plural. So he's not just talking to the Philistine, he's talking to all of them, okay? We'll give you into our hand. Now, this is what lies at the heart of the David and Goliath story. What God is saying through David is if you want to try and fight on Goliath's terms, you're going to lose every single time. David recognizes this. David knows. He goes out and he says, you know what? This battle belongs to me. I'm a 10-year-old boy with a slingshot, and I'm really good with it. You know, he is going to lose. It's not going to go well. But if he goes out knowing that no matter how good he is with the slingshot, it doesn't matter because it is God who will fight for him. He is just the vessel. Then it makes all the sense in the world. Let me try to connect this for you just a little bit. 
Our world is going to come at you with sword and spear and javelin. And we are constantly trying to figure out and fight all these things on our own, and we get slaughtered every single day. Guys, what you need to understand is you are not your own champion. You are not your own champion. God is the God that says he wants us to let him take care of it and fight those battles. And for some reason in Christianity, we think, yeah, God's going to smite my enemies and, and beat up the people I don't like because that's God winning my battle. Jesus is the one who won the battle on the cross, okay? This, is, this means your enemies of Satan, sin, and death have been defeated by Jesus for you. And when he is your champion, you rest yourself in his arms. And so when you want to take vengeance on somebody, you don't. Because vengeance is his. You let him take care of those things. You let him be your champion. God is not like the Greek gods. I mean, first and foremost, there's only one of him, and it's not you. And secondly, and secondly, all the Greek gods, they want you to fight. It entertains them. Oh, these people, yeah, this, this is great and wonderful. God calls his people, at, and resting in Jesus, to first become peacemakers. We first become peacemakers. Now, that doesn't mean at some point there's not a place where we need to stand up and take a stand and, and fight. But first and foremost, we must be peacemakers. I mean, eventually, David fights. Eventually, he does. But Jesus calls us now to first and foremost be peacemakers. I mean, sometimes we face huge problems or huge issues or people in our lives. And we think we are allowing God to be our champion, but we're simply using him like a tool in our arsenal. Like we pull out the God weapon. And we say, God's on our side, and God's going to strike you down, and God's going to... No, God is on God's side. That is whose side God is on. We're supposed to be ambassadors. We're supposed to be his vessels. We become the tool to be used. It's not the other way around. David was God's instrument. God wasn't David's instrument. And this all comes down to how you focus and see the narrative and the story. If you view the world like a Greek, well, then obviously God's on your side and God's your weapon and you pull him out and you smack people around with him. But if you see it the way that God intends and the scriptures are written, you understand that we are God's vessels. Our lives are found in him. We rest and relax and don't feel like it's all about our pride. It's about his glory being shown in the world. It's completely different. God constantly tells the story of what we would call an anti-hero. This is a story consistent throughout the scriptures. It's going to be a story we look at at almost every single one of these coloring book all-stars. They're all anti-heroes. Like, look at Noah. Noah's an anti-hero. He was a vessel for God to unfold his story in the world. John the Baptizer, last week, he is an anti-hero. He's an instrument of God in God's hands used to write God's story. See, the Greeks, they are all about heroes, lifting up people, this person, that person, and they faced off against one another through technology and power and might and skill. And yet when they come against the living God, he skips all of those things and says, let me do it for you, 10-year-old boy, 10-year-old boy, yeah, give me that one, I'll use this one. And that's what God does, because God is the champion. Now, for me, I haven't really faced off with a contest of champions in my life. Let's you consider Halo, and then I just get beat up all the time, something like that, right? Uh, but it makes sense for my life when we start to look at it as the larger narrative of what God is doing. Because you look at it as more than just an historical event. It's about the nature of existence and the nature of our lives. Have you ever faced off with a Goliath? Have you ever had a problem in your life that's over nine feet tall that had lots of weapons and it just taunted you? I mean, if you own a business, have an issue that seems insurmountable. Maybe you have issues of health that want to kill you, like running a sword through your body to just take you out. It seems insurmountable. 
Maybe you're married and you and your spouse fight all the time. You've got this Goliath-type issue that is just tearing you apart and you don't know what to do with it. Maybe it's your own anger or hurt or sorrow or fear and it bears down to kill you. God's narrative through this story is an invitation to imitate David when you see these things. That you become vulnerable enough to be God's instrument. That you love first. That you go first. That you bless first. Because God has first blessed you. And God has first loved you. All the things that we face in our world, in our lives, are never going to go away. Happy thought. For Sunday morning, right there, right, right. You know, one Goliath goes down, another one's just going to stand back up and, and take its place. This is the nature of the fallen world. And when you try to face off against these problems on your own, you're going to be like a 10-year-old boy facing down a 9-foot giant, and it will not work. Uh, in, some, in some cultures, uh, ancient cultures, and even some today, they use what are called grinding stones. Uh, these are two big stones that they put wheat between, and it makes it as fine as possible. But the stones don't have any bias about what actually gets stuck between them. If your hand goes in there, pulverized hand. That, that's what you get. Bugs go in there, you get ground bug. You know, rocks go in there, you get ground rock. It's just the nature of the stones to grind. This world at times can be like that, like grinding stones. And when you try and take it on, you will lose. But the really interesting thing about a grinding stone is that right in the direct center, it's relatively safe, so to speak. I mean, it's scary, right, because it's a big old stone and all that, but, but wherever at the center doesn't get ground up. David, in his confrontation with Goliath, he's in the center of what God called him to. The center of it. Now, was it scary? Probably. Okay? Probably. I know 10-year-old boys don't somebody have a whole lot of sense, right? But, you know, it's probably still a little bit scary. Did he worry about his safety? Probably. Probably. His brother's like, ah, I don't care, whatever that kid. His parents didn't know, obviously. Saul apparently didn't care, you know, whatever. You know, uh, did he wonder how God's going to do what God is going to do? Probably. Because because we don't we don't get all that. All we get is the straight narrative story of what's taking place. You don't know what's going on in David's head. But see, David was kept. And notice I didn't say safe, but David was kept because he stayed in the center of God's calling. He listens to God. He let God handle it. And he was cared for and protected. David and Goliath is about God's sovereignty in all things. And for us, that requires immense trust. It requires immense humility. Awareness of how powerful God actually is in the midst of our troubles. When our lives are aligned with him, he takes us through all of our lives. It doesn't mean we're always safe. It doesn't mean everything turns out the way that we want. What it means is that God allows us to go through some things, and he has us so that we become the people he intends for us to be. He grows us through all of these very scary things. You see that David's focus was on God and him alone. God's words, his speech, his, his actions. I mean, you'll see later in David's life, because after this series, we're going to hear a series called Legends of the Fall, and we're going to do all the bad guys in the Bible, or bad stories, and we're going to actually hit the same, David again with Bathsheba. And you see what happens when his life doesn't center itself in the person of who God is. And so you'll see these two different things. But, but for you and me in the middle of our struggles and our battles, our speech and our mind and our hearts must return to who Jesus is and what he has done. That he is the center of our lives, that we find our lives centered in him. It's of great importance to remember how the gospel pertains to all of our life. I mean, think of how lost the world was. Okay, how lost the world is. No hope for redemption, no hope for life. And yet Jesus comes. And what happens? You've got this Goliath called Rome. And Rome kills him. Jesus died the death we should have died. He lived the life we should have lived. But death doesn't hold him in the grave. And he resurrects. And his death goes to cover our sin. His life goes to bring us back to life. We have restored relationship with God where it always has been because our champion fought the battle and won for us. 
This is the importance of understanding God's overarching narrative. What God did with David and Goliath, he also did with Jesus just in a completely different way. Our sin got hit in the spam, (laughs) and it went down. Living the gospel means we live the story of David every single day. Jesus, our life centered in Jesus, and we are centered in him, and that's how it works. And how we speak, and how we interact with others, and how we encounter the issues this world throws at us will all be seen in light of the gospel. We are a people who cry to Jesus in humility, understanding that we as a people cannot face the giants without first being centered in who Jesus is. It is not easy. It'll be a moment-to-moment process and refocusing of all we are on who he is. In Psalm 46, verses 1 to 3, it says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Even in all that, our God is our refuge and our strength. This is one of the reasons why on the cross, Jesus says these words. He says, it is finished. It's finished. The battle has been won. The war against sin and death is over. And he is the victor. And he gives the victory to us. We now become a people who live with our lives centered in the person and the work of Christ. Because when that happens, we will stop seeing God as our weapon. And we'll realize that we are his vessels sent into the world to be used the way that he calls us to be used. That we will be his first and foremost in all things. This is one of the reasons why we go to communion every single week. When you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us, you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. His body that was broken for you and me. So that we do not have to struggle and be our own champion. That we can trust him to be our champion, and we lay all of our struggles and lives down at his more than capable feet. And we get up and we live the life that he calls us to, centered in him. The band's going to come up. As they do, uh, we invite you guys to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons in the back, and if you need prayer, maybe you feel like this world is overwhelming you, it is starting to destroy you, and you'd like someone to pray for you in the midst of that. Uh, maybe your life has never been centered in the person of Christ, and you want to follow Jesus today and surrender your life to him, it would be amazing. It would be amazing for that to happen. And so they'd love to pray and talk to you about that as well. Uh, there's offering boxes in the sidewall on the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving will be part of our worship, so you have the opportunity every week. And there's food and cookies in the back, and there's going to be tri-tip outside. We invite you guys to grab something to eat, meet some other people, start learning how to walk through this life with one another, focused on the person of Christ, because we will begin to learn how to do this better by being in community with other believers who say, how are you living that? You know, Oh, it looks like here you're trying to use God as your own blunt weapon to smack people over the head with. How about you find yourself in him and allow him to lead you in the places he wants you to go? Friends and community around us are very important for how we live this life. We need them. They are important to how we live our understanding of the gospel, how we live that out. It's like Donald talked about in announcements. This is a great time to be in a gospel community because we're starting a brand new series. And if you would like to be in one, just talk to somebody in the back. Someone will get a hold of you this week and invite you over. Uh, But this is the idea that we are a people who must understand that all of our battles have already been won in the person of Jesus. And though our lives have all these things that we don't understand, we don't know what's going on, we don't get it half the time, it's okay because he does. And when we trust ourselves in him, he will bring us out the other side exactly where he needs us to be. And he will have more glory, and we will grow into the people he is calling us to be.
because our God is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us daily how you have won our battle and our war. That we don't always have to be a people that feel like we're always fighting against somebody. But we could be a people who live and rest. Who find ourselves in you. Who understand that our lives are found in you. Teach us what it means to understand that you are not just our Lord and Savior and King and God and friend and Savior, but you are also our champion. And that our champion didn't stay in the grave. He rose and he is alive. That all the things that stood against us and pulled us from a relationship with you have been taken care of at the cross. That when you said, it is finished, it is finished. And now, we can become a people who live and walk in the hope and the grace of who you are. That we can take great encouragement as our lives are found in you. I ask that you would teach us to understand the great hope of the gospel made alive in us because you have made us alive. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.